Hi, y'all. It's Justin. And it's Sydney. We've had some uh, uh, interesting developments in the world of blood donation. Uh, and we are going to talk to you about some of the new guidelines because it means a lot of people who maybe couldn't give blood before uh, are, will be able to. But to, to do that, what we're going to do first is play you an episode uh, about blood donation that we have already done. It's and called, Charles Drew. Yes, absolutely. And at the end of the episode, uh, we will be back to uh, tell you about some of these new updates. It's a fascinating story. Hope you enjoy it. And we'll talk to you in just a few. Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Everybody and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And today we're going to be celebrating a very special month. The month that I, Justin McElroy, became a notary public. Just got the paperwork through today. Uh, it's very exciting. A lot of people are talking about it. And um, gosh, February. That's so not I, the most important I thing like to, to celebrate this February, month. February, people should take a moment, look around, and remember... I wasn't always a notary public. You, you know? were on the inside. That's true. I do have a very notary public vibe. Yeah. I? Yeah. I just Justin gives off that feeling of like, that guy's a notary, I bet. I, get the, I bet that guy's I, I need something notarized. I bet I should call Justin McRoy. I bet he... <laughs> I don't know that... You know what's interesting about that? I don't know that that's necessarily my podcast persona is like guy who should be a notary. But like, if you know me personally, that is 100% my level. Yeah. That is where I'm at. Guy who's probably a notary and now is. And <laughs> now, now you'd is. be correct. He is a notary. February. No, folks. Justin. February is not about you. Everything's <laughs> about you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, February is not about you. Okay. It's it's Black History Month. You know that. I know. Yes. Just having some fun. Yes. And, uh, you know, because it is Black History Month, I thought um, we would do something that we don't often get to do on Sawbones, which is talk about someone in medical history. Who did good stuff? <laughs> wow, always nice to hear. Not, not usually. We're talking about when you, when you come up as a figure of interest on our show. Yeah, if you don't want Sydney, you want Sydney to keep keep your name out her mouth. Now we cover, we've done this before. We've talked about other you know famous people in medical history who actually like did good stuff and contributed and and that kind of thing. So this isn't the first time, but I thought that this would be particularly timely because not only can we celebrate. Um, an amazing black physician in history, but we can also emphasize the importance of blood donation at the same time. Because as you may be aware, uh, we're in we're in dire straits in much of the country in terms of uh, blood banking supplies. Yeah, it is not. It is not. Uh, now, some people are doing their part. Yes, like you. 
Yeah, I know. I know you wanted to brag about that. <laughs> it's uh, you know, I just got the notification. That my blood is headed to God. Uh, it's headed to WVU to mm-hmm. be used at the medical center there. Uh, I do wish that I could have somehow indicated to them that that's the blood of an artery. I mean, it wasn't when it was extracted, so I right. don't know if it's quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, next time I donate, I'll be sure to, like, can you please put an N on there? For notary? MP for notary public or, oh, you know, something yeah. like that. Okay. Because I want people to know. <laughs> you want people to know. It's a wonderful experience. We'll talk more about that and urge you, if you can, to consider donating blood at the end. But um, it is a wonderful experience. I donated blood once overseas and had the opportunity to actually, like, take my bag of blood of, from my body and hang it on an IV pole and help. Well, I didn't hook it up because I am not as good at that as uh, the nurse that I was working with. <laughs> That's that They hooked that- it up. But I got, to, I got to do that, and it was such a, an amazing— Feeling and that, you can that's get that. That's, glow. that's how Sid the vessel blood it just goes straight. You can't get fresher than that. No, it was it was still warm, <laughs> still warm from from a vein. Uh, but anyway, we have done an episode before about the history of blood transfusions back in 2015 when we were so young, oh, naive, had no idea what what was in store. Um, so if you want to hear the whole history of all the dumb stuff we did. <laughs> Before we figured out blood transfusions and all of our attempts, that is uh, detailed in that episode. I don't want to go back and talk about all of that again. But I did think, like I said, this was a really good opportunity to talk about blood donation, blood banking, and celebrate the work of Dr. Charles Drew. Okay. Which when I say Dr. Drew, I'm talking about Dr. Charles Drew. (laughs) We're talking about the good one. No good one. The famous American physician, surgeon, uh, scientist, blood scientist expert who yes. is the father of blood banking, as you know it. Not Loveline, Dr. Trump. No. Who I think has said some sort of— He's had some things. We're not going to get Yeah, we're not going to get into that, Dr. Dr. Drew. Right now. Yeah. No, Dr. Dr. Charles Drew was born in Washington, D.C. in 1904, the oldest of five children. He studied at Amherst College, and then he worked as a, a professor of biology and chemistry for a couple years at Morgan College to save money for medical school. Uh, when he applied to medical school, he decided to go to McGill University in Montreal mm-hmm. um, for his— medical training. And uh, while he was there, he would work alongside a Dr. John Beatty. Now, I tried to find out more about Dr. John Beatty, and I couldn't find a lot of like documentation of like his work there because I kind of wanted some like context for like, I knew he was working on treatments for shock and like, what was he doing and what was his history? Apparently there is all, because we're in Canada, right? Apparently there is also a John Beatty in Canada who was associated with, like, neo-Nazis. So it was really hard to research this specific John Beatty. So I can't tell you much about him, but he was a guy who was he was a doctor working there who was interested in how can we treat shock. Now, do you know what shock is? Uh, oh, I mean, I understand, basically. It's when you got to, you received too much of something mm-hmm. input wise, yeah, be that temperature or visual or whatever, <laughs> and it makes your body go whoa. Okay, well that's different <laughs> than the shock I'm talking about. That is that is a shock. Yes, 
I am talking about like medical shock, like the the condition of. Yes. And there's different. What did like, I just say? What am, what am I talking about? No, like okay, shock is. He's a, in shock. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, but that's not when you're. He just defeated Hans Gruber. Yeah, that's he's, when you're like stunned. So, he's in shock. Um, there are different types of shock, medical shock, and they're usually distinguished by like the cause. Like septic shock is when you're septic, probably from or well from an infection of some sort. I should say probably that you are. You have an infection, you've become septic, and you can go into shock from that. Um, there's hemorrhagic shock which is you lose a lot of blood and you go into shock. And basically the idea is that you're not getting blood and therefore oxygen to a lot of parts of your body all at the same time. Your blood pressure will drop. Um, You can start to have multi-organ damage. Um, It's a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. It is deadly if not treated. Shock. No matter what the cause is, you got to do something about it. The treatment of shock is different from shock treatment. Those are two similar yes. sounding concepts that are completely different. No, this has nothing to do with electricity, like shocks. This is this is different. Okay. Okay. So basically what he was looking at is in a lot of these cases, you need to put volume back in the vascular system. You need to put something back in to maintain blood pressure, to keep blood flowing to the organs, mm-hmm. to keep, you know, you from going into kidney death and liver death and brain death and everything dying, right? Right. Um, If, for instance, it's because you're bleeding a lot, then you need to put blood in there. Yeah. So that's the solution for a lot of these conditions. We need to put blood or there's lots of options we have now. We didn't have any of this needles finding out the other things we put Mm -hmm. in there besides blood. Well, at at this point, we didn't have a lot of ideas. (laughs) Um, I mean, blood seems good. (laughs) Well, there's, right? no, there's lots of options now. Saline? Yeah. Gatorade? No, not Gatorade. Pedialyte? Well, you don't, I mean, you can drink Pedialyte, mm. but that, but like when somebody's mm. going into shock, you don't have time to be like, go get me a case of Pedialyte. <sighs> what about Brondo? No. So, okay. At this point in history, the idea of just someone needs blood, give it to them is not that simple. Okay. Here's why. So we knew already about the concept of blood transfusions. And like I said, a lot of this we talked about in a past episode, but just to kind of sum up so you know where we are. We had, at, like I said, we had already known about it for about 100 years. Dr. James Blundell was a British obstetrician who during a delivery where the patient was losing a lot of blood, he actually took blood out of the patient's husband, mm-hmm. the father of the child, took blood from him and injected it into her. Quick, uh, hey, shout out to the people who uh, were choosing their obstetrician, and there was somebody named Blunt, Dr. Blundell, and they were like, sounds good. Uh, Dr. Blundell guarantees to drop your baby just the regular <laughs> amount, no matter what, even though it sounds like I'm playing by freaking Rowan Atkinson, like, I nice. trust me, I'm a regular good doctor. And he, uh, like, was one of the early, like, pioneers of blood transfusion. Good. Despite the name Dr. Blundell. (laughs) So. (laughs) Dr. Blundell sounds like a pudding doctor. So this was back in 1818. Okay. Um, And this is obviously not how we do blood transfusions today. We don't just randomly like, here, let me draw some blood from you and inject it straight into you. Good. Good work. Like, we wouldn't do that now. But this was like the first attempt at these things. And since then, there had been a lot of research done in that area to try to make the process better. Um to do like whole blood transfusions. So not just like, like he, he literally had drawn a few cc's of blood from 
right. the one person and inject it into the other person. So like doing whole blood transfusions for uh, patients with hemophilia, that was one of the first areas where they really tried this. Um, discovering blood types. At this point in history, we already know about blood types. Mm -hmm. We know about um, transfusion reactions. If you don't use the right type, what can happen? Um, we have the concept of matching somebody's type and also crossing the blood. Like, let's take blood from the donor and blood from who we're going to give the blood to, the recipient, and put it together and make sure nothing crazy happens. Like, we had already sort of figured a lot of that stuff out. We had briefly tried some, some weird stuff like, why don't we transfuse milk into people? Oh, yeah. That wasn't great. There were a lot of reactions from the transfusion of, it was like cow or human milk. So we weren't doing that. We had figured out saline at this point, that so, if somebody just needs volume, you just need more stuff to saw, keep. Which is saw, it's just salt water. The doctors come up with that's the true. name for it, but it's just salt water. Um, and we even knew about like, like the ocean. There's other stuff in the ocean. Ain't that the truth? Saline is like just mermen, salt water. Mermen. <laughs> Coral mystery. Uh, we even knew about like universal donors, Titanic. and we knew <laughs> we knew about um, anti clotting stuff like sodium citrate that you can put in there so that the blood won't clot in the bag. Because that was a big problem at first. Was like you don't have a lot of time. <laughs> here, here it is, I'm ready to save your life with my bag of scabs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that really would have been a problem. That was I know, why. That's why I said it, it was like direct. Well, you're right. You don't have to act so shocked every time I say something that's apropos to the conversation. <laughs> yeah, but this this allowed like that. This allowed for like you could store the blood for short periods of time, very short. We're talking a couple days. Like you still you still don't have blood banking abilities, but you at least don't have to take it directly out of one person and put it into another. They even tried for a while, like sewing a vein from one person to an artery of another person to like have the blood flow. Direct hookup. I yeah, like, like, but that didn't work very well. But it was it was very important to like organ uh, transplantation science later. So like cool. it was a really big thing that they did, but that didn't really help with blood transfusion. Anyway, so if a patient needs blood and you and you've got a couple units that you've stored for a couple days or whatever, great. But in an emergency, when maybe multiple people need blood product or um, somebody needs more than just a few units, this is not ideal, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of hospitals are, are not going to be able to maintain that and, and do this. So because he worked with this John Beatty at um, McGill on this sort of shock treatment and, well, treatment of shock <laughs> and that kind of thing, uh, he was already aware of this problem. This was already something that he was interested in. He'd studied. He had knowledge about um, as he continued his career, he graduated with a medical degree and a master of surgery from McGill, and he went to work initially as a professor of pathology at Howard um, and then as a surgical instructor and assistant at Friedman's Hospital. But in 1938, this is really when he kind of took all that knowledge and experience and he would sort of embark on the, the, the science that would define his career. He was a Rockefeller scholar at Columbia. And while he was there, he devoted the research and what he would eventually earn his doctorate in is um, blood sciences, which I didn't know that was its own. I think that's a very cool thing. Like I am a doctor of blood science. It's pretty good. I think it's Sounds a very cool. cool thing to, yeah. So he's already a medical doctor. He's getting also, this is like I a bet, PhD. He's getting the, another doctorate. I bet the interview process to make sure you're not a vampire for that is like wild. Like, because of course you would be. You know what I mean? Like a lot of vampires are trying a to get into blood science. A lot of vampires science. is like number one. 
number one interest. I don't know what draws me to it. I don't know if you'd want to. I mean, the, well, I guess vampires are kind of arrogant because I would say, like, why wouldn't you just want to, like, something that wouldn't be too high profile? Just, like, volunteer at a blood bank or something where, like, no, no, no. you See, know what I mean? Where you could kind no, no, of, like, fly under the radar. If you volunteer at a blood bank, someone's taking inventory of that, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if, you, if you're <clears> sipping off a pint, replace it with Kool-Aid or whatever you do. Your people are going to notice that mm-hmm. pretty quickly. But if they're giving it to you, if you're like, I need all this for research, trust me, then <laughs> no one's going to check up on you. I guess that's true. And you can. I need all this for research. And, and I guess you could just say, like, well, it didn't work. I tried. I don't have anything this to publish. Is science. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. He, so, okay. So, anyway. He took all of his knowledge, he he earned his doctorate, and his dissertation was titled Banked Blood, A Study in Blood Preservation. So basically, he took a lot of the uh, sort of the basic science that was being done on these areas of separating blood and storing blood and preserving blood. And what he figured out from all this and what he developed on his own was a method of separating out the components of blood. So what we think of as whole blood, which is like, I just took some blood from your arm. There's mm-hmm. the blood, whole, the whole thing, all the blood. Um, it can only be kept for so long. But if you take out the cells and then you've got the plasma, everything else, separate, mm-hmm. that, if dried or nowadays frozen appropriately, can be kept a lot longer. So all of a sudden you go from a couple days to a few months mm. that you can store this stuff, right? And you can reconstitute it when you need it. So you keep it in storage and when you need to you know, reliquify it. You can do that. Um, you can combine it with cells if you need whole blood again, or you can just give people plasma. Sometimes, I don't want to get into all the particulars, but sometimes you can just give people it's plasma. A yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, so nowadays, just to, to flash forward a little bit, nowadays, we have lots of options for, do people need like packed red blood cells right now? Do they need, um, fresh frozen plasma do they need cryoprecipitate like there are lots of different sort of you can and it depends on what's going on with the patient you can do they have like different like platelets they have one called um power red which is uh that you could do when you sign up i didn't go this route but it's uh, a uh, special machine is used to allow you to safely donate two units of red blood cells during one donation and then they give you the uh, plasma and playlist back. Yes. It's like a, it's like a, if you want to get really, if you want to level up your blood donation, you so, go power red. And what we're talking about right now with Dr. Drew is like the beginning of that. This is where the, all this idea started and which really allows us to best utilize the blood that's donated, right? right? So that we can get people the parts they really need, save it for as long as is safe, you know, make sure it's all screened properly, make sure it's matched properly. I mean, like, this is the beginning of all that sort of thought process. Um, so this was his dissertation. This is the science that he was sort of spearheading. Mm-hmm. What did he do with it? I will tell you, but first we got to go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals 
right to your door and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high quality chef crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I'm eating filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You probably already have a favorite animal. Maybe it's a powerful apex predator like the tiger or a cute and cuddly panda. And those are great. But have you considered something a little more unconventional? Could I perhaps interest you in the Greenland shark, which can live for nearly 400 years? Or maybe the jewel wasp who performs brain surgery on cockroaches to control their minds? On Just the Zoo of Us, we review animals by giving them ratings out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Listen with friends and family of all ages to find your new favorite animal with Just the Zoo of Us on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Jordan Cruciola, the host of Feeling Scene, where we talk about the movie characters that make us feel seen. And I'm the show's producer, Marissa. Jordan, you've interviewed so many directors, actors, writers, film critics, and I like to play this little game where I take a sip of coffee every time someone says, that's such a great question. That's such a fabulous question. Or they tell you how smart you are. I think that you are rather brilliant. And of course, the big one is... 
when, when they, they cry, cry unexpectedly. unexpectedly. Yes, yes. Jordan, I don't want to cry on your podcast. I wasn't expecting to <laughs> cry. I mean, it makes me kind of want to cry. <sighs> Feeling Seen comes out every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Listen already. What are you waiting for? Jordan, that's such a great question. <laughs> So he has all this knowledge. What's he doing with this? He publishes this, you know, thesis, this dissertation. He is, by the way, he was also the first black American to receive a doctoral degree from Columbia. Um, So he does this and it's groundbreaking. It's very exciting what he has published. Um, And it drew the attention of a Dr. John Scudder, who had also been studying methods of preservation and the concept of like, how can we better bank blood so that we don't so that we can have a supply of it in a hospital for whoever comes in, a trauma or, you know, whatever injuries or what if we have a mass casualty event, whatever it is. Like, how can we supply people with blood better? What can we do? Um, and there was a ton of interest in this at this moment in history because the year is 1940. War. It, war drums are sounding across the planet. Yeah. That's- war. <laughs> Our fighting men and women are gearing up to do war. Yeah, over there, over there. Over there. Um, so it is, this is prior to the U.S. entering the war, um, but obviously we were interested. <laughs> yeah, Keeping tabs yeah. on things. Would love some blood. Um, had like a side we were on, <laughs> you might say. Um, not so much so that we had entered the war, but uh, but definitely had one one side we were sort of you know, ready yeah. to support. And so uh, it's 1940, and the idea of having plentiful blood stores for transfusions is very appealing right. to us, depending on what the future would indeed bring, and to the people of Great Britain, who very right. much needed blood banking at this time. Our former overlords, you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, like, by, by we're in, it's 1940. I'm not going to let go of the grudge. A lot of people are just going to sail on past and keep on drinking tea or whatever over here, but I'm, I won't let it go. I would hope by even 1940, people were kind of over that. Nope, never. No, still I'll not. Never, I'll never let it go. Uh, so Scudder uh, reached out to Drew and said, hey, I would love if we could develop love. <laughs> a program for banking blood um, and we can ship it to Great Britain. We yeah. can ship it to the UK. Wouldn't that be great? Like the US can do it. You're yeah. the you're the genius who came up with all this. Let's get together. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Um, so Dr. Drew spearheaded what would be called the Blood for Britain program. That's fun. Yeah. And love the, the alliteration for sure. Yeah. And basic and, and that's exactly what he was doing. He was collecting, processing, testing, making sure it wasn't contaminated, you know, safe uh collection and storage of uh blood from initially like New York hospitals. Hmm. So they were taking Blood from kind New Yorkers who are willing to donate and have, be, have it preserved and shipped overseas to support the British military. Uh, he collected over 14,500 pints of blood with this process, um, donated a ton of blood to the British military. And he also developed during this the concept of like, well, what if we could take – instead of having to go to a hospital to donate blood – what if we could find a way to do it out in communities or to set up shop at other medical facilities where they don't necessarily do this? Mm-hmm. Um, so he developed the concept of what would be called a blood mobile oh. or a blood bus. Blood bus. Blood mobile, blood bus. And you would send this blood bus out to wherever, 
and it had like a refrigeration unit and everything. So you could go have people come in, donate blood, you store their blood, and you can get it back to the hospital or wherever you're, you know, yeah. you need a bigger facility. But like he developed all this, all this sort of science so that we could increase our supply. Um, and this was really like the first blood banking effort. Hmm. Dr. Charles Drew came up with all these ideas, strategized, not just like the science behind it, but the logistics. How will we do this? He was the one who figured it all out. And uh, like I said, this was before the U.S. had entered World War II. Well, once we did enter the war. Spoilers. You think people don't know? Yeah. (laughs) But once we did enter the war, um, it became all the more apparent why we need Drew skills, why we needed, you know— to take those same techniques that he was using to bank blood, ship it overseas, we need to start doing to support the U.S. military at this point as well. That's what we're going to Brit, we're like, listen, can we have some of that blood back? <laughs> Do <laughs> you back. have any of it? Left? I know we got all like willy-nilly started throwing blood, <laughs> blood around because we got a little cocky, but we would actually like some of that back. <laughs> that's American blood. That's, uh, that's uh, New York blood. And... Uh, not UK blood, so give it to us. No, we didn't do that. We uh, Dr. Drew was named director of the first American Red Cross blood bank, the very first effort of this uh, in February of 1941. And basically, his job at this point is everything you did for Blood for Britain, we want to do it here. We want to create a second blood, his second blood bank. And this would be specifically to supply the U.S. military personnel, uh, especially like the uh, Army and Navy is where this was was focused. So um, unfortunately, as he began this part of his career, mm-hmm. it would be cut short by racism. Uh, so he began to collect blood explicitly, yeah, again, using a lot of the same like science and logistics, all these techniques that he had developed that were his like he had done all this mm-hmm. um, for members of the U.S. Army and Navy and the military uh, came to him, the Army and Navy, and said, um, "We, this is great, except we don't want blood from any black Americans, please. And obviously this is ridiculous. It's beside being, besides being racist and um, ignorant, it's devoid of science. Like there's no reason mm-hmm. to, you know, limit blood donation by race. Mm-hmm. There's no scientific basis for that idea right. um, and he pointed all that out and was very upset about it and they were like okay well listen fine fine we get your point how about instead we just sort of um, store separately maybe like segregate you could say the blood supply from black donors and white donors so that they would only use the blood right, supply right, from white right. donors right uh, and at this point because again this is racist and unscientific and unnecessary and and dangerous because it's a it's a war effort. Yeah. You need all the blood you can get from yeah. any kind willing donor. Um at that point Dr. Charles Drew said, "You know what? I'm actually done." Uh and so he resigned his his post in 1942 in protest of the racist policies um from the US military. What a shame. I know it's a it's a complete shame. Now the 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 work he had done, the methods he had spearheaded, his dissertation, all of his research, all of his science, uh, people were still benefiting from. You know, all of that good that he had done and put out into the world was still there. I mean, the first blood banks he created, these first logistics and methods, 
He was the one who came up with this, who problem solved all of this um, and provided, who knows, at the end of the day, stemming from all this research and, and stuff, how many people's lives were saved from these methods. I mean, it would be impossible to quantify the number of people who benefited from this. Um, he did continue his medical career for a while uh, at Howard and Friedman's Hospital. He was a professor. He was a surgeon. Um, he was honored in his lifetime. It's always nice because I feel like a lot of um, these famous figures from medical history are yeah, not get, yeah. recognized until that's after all they— a lot of history, right? Well, that's now. true. That's yeah. true. But the NAACP gave him an award um, in 1944 for his um, just outstanding efforts and achievements that changed mankind— essentially. And to this day, there are a number of medical facilities, schools. He was on a stamp in like 1981. Um, he has been honored since then for his contributions to medical science and for being the father of blood banking. I know you always give me a hard time when I mention the end of someone's life on this show, but I think that it is relevant because the first time I heard about Dr. Charles Drew was on an episode of MASH. And they talk about him and they actually repeat a myth that I did not know was a myth for many, many years after watching that episode. So if you've seen that episode of MASH, what I'm about to tell you is that uh, – Hawkeye lied to you. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but the he died uh, in a car accident since the about the year 1939. He would go to an annual free clinic that was held in Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. And volunteer his medical services, his surgical services during this uh, free clinic. Um, and so he did the same and was headed back. This was 1950 and was headed back from this the next morning and unfortunately died in a fatal car accident on his way home. There is a story, and if you've seen the MASH episode, you've heard it, that he uh, was taken to a hospital and desperately needed a blood transfusion and was denied it because he was black. This is actually not true. Um, but that was the that was the myth that I had heard on MASH and thought was true. Well, this is shocking. Sydney Small McElroy, popular podcaster uh, and candidate for House of Delegates, says racism a myth? No. I don't believe this, Sydney. <laughs> Why would you even say that with that in there? Don't don't give a sound bite. No. <laughs> no. This particular instance of racism is not. No, it's just this yes, that was not. Uh, that was not. I mean, it is. It, he was. I mean, absolutely, worse stuff probably happened that day. So yes. it's not like yeah, right. Yeah, no. I just mean that that I I had heard that story on Mash, and I I thought it was true for the longest time. Mm. Um, but um, it's still it's still sad and tragic because sure, yeah, his life was cut short, and he obviously had done so much. His in work such was a cut short, short by racism, and his life was cut short by car accidents. It's a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, but but um, a wonderful contribution, nonetheless. Yes, yeah. I mean that the the blood banking as we know it, it came from him. He is the one who who spearheaded that and came up with that science. Um, and it is especially relevant uh, again to celebrate Dr. Charles Drew as um, an outstanding Black American physician, surgeon, scientist, doctor who made these great cont- contributions. But also because, as I said, right now we are in dire need of blood donations. Um, if you can, this is a great time to consider donating blood. Um, I would especially raise that charge to my fellow notaries. Um, <laughs> we are, as you know, held to a higher standard, and this is your chance to, to step up and do the right thing for all notaries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, but I, and I can tell you it's, a, it's, it's very real and it's being felt. I have, 
uh, in medical facilities where I've worked in recent weeks, um, we have had, you know, variously no blood product in the hospital at various times. Um, it's also not that bad for the record. I'm, I shouldn't I'm, say no blood pro- I mean of specific blood products we needed. I'm a bit of a wimp and it's really like it didn't hurt that bad. It didn't take that long. It didn't wait around that long. Mm-hmm. Did get free snacks at the end. That's I was going to say, do you get snacks? Oh, I got snacks. Yeah. Yeah, they'll let you have another one if you ask. If you're like, if you want a second one, you could totally get another one. And they got juice too. Like, Simon, they have brownie brittle like and chips. Like, it was pretty good and fruit and stuff. And I wanted to just as a kind of brief addendum. Take um, a picture of the snacks. <laughs> a lot of people have asked about, um, or a lot of people still continue to to bring up the fact that uh, we at this point still have limitations on who can donate blood based on sexual behavior. Yes. So specifically, uh, the the guidelines, and these come from the FDA. I thought uh, they were Red Cross, but they, they are Red Cross, but they're via FDA recommendations. So any blood collection right. facility in the U.S. would be um, subject to these same guidelines. If uh, you are a man who has had sex with another man, Within the last three months, you are not allowed to donate blood. This is this is vastly different from even just a couple of years ago in response to the pandemic. Um, that has changed through the years from you can never donate blood to if you've had sex with another man within the last year, you can't donate blood to six months to now three months um, in response to an increased need, which I think a lot of people have pointed out is lousy. We didn't let you donate blood but now we will because we really need it and because we knew it was safe and we knew that this was unne- this policy at this point was unnecessary because we have such great methods of testing uh, blood product for things like HIV or hepatitis or whatever the concern is. Specifically, what this stems from is the beginnings of HIV and the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. That is where all of this comes from. Um, there is a study going on currently – that hopefully will will change this completely. It's called the Advanced Study, um, and there are sites all over the country where they are trying to see if this is well. What many what many expect is that this is not necessary. That certainly it's always important to ask people who are donating blood screening questions to assess their risk for something like HIV, but that the uh, time frame in which they may have had sex with a member of the same sex is not the best question to ask is not the best data point somewhat, you know, so to speak, to collect. Um, so hopefully we should have results from the study later this year. This will change that um, because it's always, you know, been discriminatory in a lot of ways. It is. Uh, and it's not the best science. It's not the best way to screen donors and we can do better. And so hopefully from this study, we'll see a change in that this year. Um, I hope so. Uh, well, thank you, Sydney, for that. And thanks, Dr. Drew, for, for that incredible contribution. Dr. Charles Drew. Dr. Charles Drew. Well, all Dr. Drews are, no. are pretty worthy of celebration. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> okay, Sid, uh, before we actually let past us close the show with some announcements that I'm sure are no longer timely, uh, what 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 has changed uh, since this since this episode came out? So, Justin, people have been calling for a long time for an update to the uh, sort of protocol we have in place to screen people who want to donate blood. Um, for and, and, and when I say people have been calling for an update, I mean both, 
you know, lay people within the blood donation community, people who are constant, you know, there are people who are just good, reliable donors, mm-hmm. uh, people in the scientific community, the medical community, as well as uh, people within the LGBTQ plus community, uh, because the guidelines were very uh, targeted at um, eliminating, not not necessarily for the purpose of eliminating men who have sex with men from the donor pool, but that was really how they screen people. If you were a man who has sex with men and you had had uh, sex within the last three months, you could not donate blood. Hmm. Period. And so that would, the result of that is that aside from people who were engaged in safe sexual practices, and aside from the fact that it was specifically aimed at men who have sex with men, even two people who were in a long term monogamous relationship and wanted to donate blood if they were both men would have to not have sex for three months with each other in order to donate blood, which you can see how um, discriminatory a yes, guideline like this absolutely. would be. Uh, so, uh, they have been doing studies uh, and the advanced study, I believe we've referenced in past episodes, uh, not necessarily the one you just listened to, but we've referenced that in other episodes, um, looking to see is there a better way where we can screen our our blood donation pool so that we do not transmit HIV uh, unintentionally, of course, of course. Uh, but we allow everyone who would like to donate blood and can safely do so to enter into that donor base and that we don't... Um, base our guidelines strictly on your sexual orientation because we can see why that would be discriminatory. Um, so a lot of time and research and and thought and looking at how other countries screen their donor pool went into these new updated guidelines that were just released by the FDA uh, May 11th, I believe. So these are these are brand new. So now what they're going to do is an individual risk-based assessment questionnaire that every donor will receive. So this is regardless of your gender, of your sex, of your sexual orientation, of who you have had sex with in the past. Mm-hmm. Everyone will receive the same questionnaire if to screen them for their risk. If you've never donated before, uh, which, I mean, I do all the time, so... Uh, if you if you never donated before, uh, there's like a, a a fairly lengthy questionnaire that has a lot of these things are, that are that start to feel like completely random. Like, have you been? Were you in like this part of the world at this certain time? Uh, so these like questionnaires uh, are are already happening uh, for for a lot of blood donors. Um, and and previously it would include on there, are you a man who has sex with men? Very very. St- like specifically that. Right. Um, instead, what they're going to focus on now are behaviors, not uh, what your sexual orientation is, but behaviors that anyone may have engaged in that we know put you at higher risk for contracting HIV. And these timeframes, by the way, you're going to hear three months a lot. The reason is because we know that um, within three months, that the, the, the best tests we have to detect HIV um, are are the best three months after that sexual contact or or whatever contact may have may have transmitted HIV. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's the window where you could have contracted HIV and a test would not necessarily pick it up. Um, it's usually in practice smaller than that, but three months is what we can guarantee. So okay. that's where that comes from. So anyway, it will continue to uh, 
basically people who will be asked to defer blood donation, meaning because of your risk, we're asking you not to donate. We'll still include um, people who have uh, had a positive test for HIV or people who are on medications for HIV, because even though we know that taking medications for HIV can make your viral load undetectable, which means you can't transmit it through sex, um, it's a much larger volume of blood. And we don't have data that says we couldn't then take blood from you and give it to another person and not give them HIV. That There's a difference between that and sexual contact. Okay. Um, same thing with people who have taken um, HIV preventive medicines. So if you are on pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, which we've talked about before, or if you've had an exposure that you worry about for HIV and you had to take post-exposure prophylaxis, Within the last three months, those people will be asked to defer until after that time period. Same thing for a history of people who take uh, injection medicines to prevent mm. HIV. Okay. That's, the time frame for that is two years, actually. The sex-based questionnaire is, is the real yes, please. switch. <laughs> Good one. Member from Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah, no, I gotcha. Um, if you have a history in the past three months of sex with more than one partner— um, then at that point, they're going to ask you a follow-up question. Have you had anal sex in the past three months? And it's the same thing if you've had um, multiple partners within the last three months. Again, they will ask you a question about anal sex. And if you meet that criteria, they will ask you to defer for three months. And this is for everyone. So they're not asking specifically about your sexual orientation. They're just asking about sexual practices. Um, this will be the same for a history in the past three months of exchanging sex for money or drugs or some other form of payment or a history in the past three months of um, injection drug use, mm -hmm. non-prescription injection drug use, I should say. Uh, similarly to if you've had um, some sort of transfusion in the last three months, or uh, there's actually specific guidelines uh, for a tattoo, ear, or body piercing in the last three months. Mm. Now, I will say that the FDA says if these were at licensed regulated facilities where we know that they're using single-use needles, you know, appropriately right. clean equipment and all that sort of thing, that doesn't necessarily exclude you. Okay. Um, so it would depend on sort of the situation in which you received a tattoo or piercing. Yeah. Because I think for a lot of us, we think, well, I mean, m most of us these days, I think, have. Not most, but a lot of us yeah. have. Um, so anyway, what what you see from this is, one, we're not specifically asking you to tell us before you donate blood, are you gay? Right. Um, which is very, very much what they were asking before or or bisexual. Um, now they're asking about sexual practices. They're shortening that window. And it, it reintroduces, there may be people out there listening who because uh, of any of these other guidelines have been what you thought was permanently excluded from the blood donation pool. Mm -hmm. That's no longer true. You can be reevaluated. Now, there are some hard exclusion criteria. We talked about that. If you are a person who has had a positive test for HIV, that will, we don't reevaluate then. Those still remain um, that we ask that you not donate blood. But there are a lot of people who are going to be able to donate blood now. And in this episode you just listened to, I, I said we are in a situation where we desperately need blood donors. That is something that hasn't changed. Yeah. We are still in a situation where we very much need people who are eligible, who are capable to donate blood. So if in the past, especially members of the LGBTQ plus community, if you've been excluded from donating blood related to that and you would like to, it, I would check out. These guidelines are freely available. I found the PDF online. Um, they, they've been widely published by the FDA. You can check it yourself. 
And then if you think you'd be eligible, please reconsider donating blood. Um, This is a better way to do it. It's a less discriminatory way to do it. And it's a way where we can safely expand the donor pool to more um, willing participants, which is good for everybody. If you are able to, it's and, and you never have, it's really not a big lift. You sign on to the Red Cross website. They'll have a huge list. They got an app too. A uh, huge list of places where you can go donate. You make, you schedule your appointment. Um, there's probably one near you and not too far away. Time wise, just go to uh, RedCross.org. I'm pretty sure. Uh, go to RedCross.org and you can find a bunch of different opportunities. It's not. I know some people are, you know, have stuff with needles and obviously, you know, I'm not talking to you, but if you're able to, it's really like an hour of it out of your day that you just, you could feel really good about and and do some good. So, and if you're interested, FDA.gov, you can look up the entire, it's a 19 page document with all the references. If you're the sort of person who wants to read that ahead of time, which I am, so we're alike, check it out. All right, let's uh, wrap up the episode. Thank you to you so much for uh, listening. We very much appreciate it. Um, thanks to taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Um, oh, McElroyMerch.com. You can, uh, for the rest of February, just a few more days to get the, uh, we're calling it the bookstore trouble pen, but it's a reference to hmm. bookstores. Uh, it's very c- clever. Uh, our, our designer, Sarah McKay, did a wonderful job with that one. And, um, a, a great quote from Sydney. I'm not ashamed of my clown husband. That is now a bumper sticker that you can buy that supports the Huntington Children's Museum. So please uh, get some of those. That's designed by Jacob Bailey. So thank you, Jacob. That's going to do it for us. Unless there's anything you got, Sid. Nope, that'll do it. That's going to do it until next time. Uh, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.